When will we start seeing autonomous cars and trucks? The backlogs at our nation's maritime ports won't improve anytime soon. And air freight continues its ups and downs. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Aptian is a global provider of mission-critical, industry-specific logistics and transportation management solutions. Aptian Proof of Delivery delivers the most advanced transportation systems to world-leading brands, helping to transform final mile delivery services, boost operational efficiencies, and drive business growth. Armed with the right tools, your delivery operation can be a powerful vehicle to deliver game-changing customer service, fully optimize processes, and supercharge your strategy for continuous improvement. If you're ready to reap the benefits and change the game in your delivery operation, Aptian can help. For more information, visit aptian.com and discover what's next now. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, we keep hearing that autonomous vehicles that drive themselves are coming. To find out what research is behind autonomy and to learn how long it will be before we see self-driving cars and trucks on our nation's roadways, I spoke earlier this week with Phil Koopman, an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Electrical and Computer Engineering Department and a leading expert in autonomous technologies and safety. Here now is our conversation. Welcome, Phil, to Logistics Matters. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Phil, we've heard the terms autonomous and self-driving sort of used interchangeably. Are they the same thing in the way you look at it? The way I look at it, autonomous means that the vehicle does everything. You can go to sleep in the back seat. Maybe there's no one in it. And that means it has to not only drive, but it has to do with all the other stuff that might happen on the road. People like to use the word self-driving. I've used it myself sometimes, but it doesn't really mean anything in particular. It just means something having to do with vehicle automation technology. So if you want to use self-driving as a generic term, that's fine, but it doesn't actually mean anything except there's something about the car that, that wants to do some type of driving type thing. You've been working on autonomous vehicle technology for a long time, for more than 25 years, since the 1990s. Why has it taken so long for us to see kind of fruition in this area and why are we just now starting to see its potential? Well, there's a great story from the time I started getting involved. It was back in the mid-1990s. I worked with the Carnegie Mellon University Nav Lab team and they hired me as the safety guy. Just before they hired me on, what they had done was they had gone coast to coast from Washington, D.C. to San Diego, 98% hands off the wheel. 98% hands off the wheel, coast to coast, in 1995. And that's way before the Grand Challenge. It's way before anything. I got hired on because after that trip, they were like, you know, maybe we need a safety guy, right? And then what was going on was in the late 1990s, I think it was 1998, there was an automated highway system demo where they closed off part of the freeway near San Diego, and they drove cars, a bunch of platoon cars, city bus, down the road, no hands on the wheel, for a closed piece of interstate highway, again, almost 25 years ago, right? And so the way I like to look at it is that 
we were 98% hands off the wheel across the country in 95. And ever since, we've been working on that last 2%. Why is it uh, but, taking so long then? And why are we only now really talking about it being possible? Well, the catch is the last 2% is really tough. Uh, and it's, this is fundamental to the, issue, to the issues of this industry. If um, you have a vehicle that's good at the easy stuff, you know, that, that's certainly impressive to get there, but you know, we've been there since the 90s in, in some sense. And it's really that last 2% is tough because it's just, it's always something new. It's something you haven't seen before. Uh, and there's an infinite variety of weird stuff in the world and handling it all turns out to be a lot harder than, than people want it to be. Now we see a lot of these driver assist technologies available in our cars today. Um, lane departure, automatic braking, uh, even my Toyota can pretty much park itself. Are these steps towards autonomy or are we only seeing other things that just assist drivers and they're not really going to be key parts of autonomy? Well, they're a contribution, they're a step. And in reality, what was going on in the 90s was more like that than full autonomy. It was automatic lane keeping, things like this, things that today we call driver assistance. Uh, and those are important to have, but making those better and better doesn't actually solve the autonomy problem. And the reason is really fundamental. The reason you have a human driver, you need a human driver in the, in the driver assistance vehicles is the machine learning part is good at knowing what it knows. Uh, we can probably hit that later, but it's good at knowing what it knows and it's really, really brittle at stuff that it hasn't seen before. The purpose of the human driver is to deal with the stuff it hasn't seen before. So driver assistance is great. You'd want driver assistance on a fully autonomous vehicle. You know, nothing like automatic emergency braking. I'd love to have that as belt and suspenders, but that's really bad at the weird stuff. And that's what we have humans for. So they're fundamentally different goals. In driver assistance, if the technology messes up, well, that's the human's fault because it was trying to help out after a mistake was made. But in fully autonomous systems, if there's a mistake, you know, any loss that happens, that's the fault of the machine. Very, very different. So probably the biggest question that our listeners would like to know is, when will we, we realistically see autonomous trucks on our highways? It's more a question of how than when. Uh, if you want to just completely replace a truck driver, that's a long way in the in the distant future. And, and by the way, truck drivers do more than drive. It's, uh, I don't have to tell your audience that. But even just the driving part is a long way off if you don't want to make any limitations on what's going on. Uh, if you're willing to do something like say, okay, it's this one stretch of interstate highway and every day somebody goes through and makes sure all the lane markers are there and there's been no paint spilled or oil spilled that obscures the lane marker and there's no been no big pile of sand and there's no been no landslide and and everything's perfect if you're willing to do that and maybe there's a guide vehicle that goes down and the trucks all follow it in a conga line behind the guide vehicle and the guide vehicle is responsible for making sure that if there's a, an animal on the road it gets scared off the road if you're willing to make those kind of concessions, it could happen in the next few years. But I don't see next year somebody just saying, okay, here's a thousand trucks, let her rip. I don't see that coming as soon as a lot of people are saying. You talked about the, the guide vehicle or, or a platoon. Do you see that as, as a step where you would have um, one vehicle that would be driving and the others following in a train? 
this my favorite pet theory is just that I think a guide vehicle makes a lot of sense, but I don't see anyone trying to commercialize that. Uh, what there is one company that's having a leader follower where there's a human driver in the front and then automated in the follower and then they swap. Uh, that company's locomation that makes a lot more sense to me than just saying, "Hey, we're going to have every truck do everything in the next year." Uh, but there are people who are promising that, and they've got billions of dollars behind them. So we're going to see how that turns out. You had mentioned um, just about the difficulty with doing this. Do you think that there's going to be dedicated lanes for autonomous trucks, or possibly even dedicated highways, in a sense? It's really hard to know how that's going to go. There's a trade-off between how much infrastructure you want and how hard the problem is to get the vehicle to do everything a human driver would do. I would think it's completely reasonable to do things like have dedicated on-off ramps at logistics centers. Uh, maybe there's an HOV lane. It's going to depend on the road. It's going to depend on conditions. Another way to go is to say, well, the trucks have certain times of day when the highway's lightly used, and that's when they the trucks show up for heavy use. There's a lot of ways to play it. I don't know how it's going to turn out because it depends on the business models and all the companies and the, and the local regulators. But I think that just turning the trucks loose is going to take a long time. And it's smart to think about ways to make the problem easier to assure safety while you're still getting the, the trucks down the road. You had mentioned about uh, off hours. So realistically, we could see a lot of these trucks possibly moving at nighttime when there's less traffic on the road. I would think that'd be a smart move. The The more you have the road to yourself, the easier it is to ensure safety. Phil, both you and I li live here in Pittsburgh, and I know they've been testing autonomous vehicles on the streets of the city for a, for a number of years. They obviously have a driver behind the wheel, and, and they're there to be able to, to control the car at any moment. Urban logistics seems to be a very difficult thing for autonomous vehicles. So you see primarily that... Um, most of the autonomy that we will see will start first in interstates, correct? Well, we're going to see everything. Right now in Arizona, Waymo is in fact running robo-taxis without drivers in a, in a very, very benign environment. Uh, it's hard. I doubt they're making any money at it, but, but they're doing it. So we're going to see some of everything. Uh, the difference between urban and highways is it isn't that one's easier, it's that they're different. In urban, you have a lot of crazy stuff happening all the time. It's a very chaotic environment, depending where you're driving. But the good news is, if you're driving slow enough, a lot of times you can just jam on the brakes and you're fine. You just have to know when to jam them on. If you're on a truck going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, jamming on the brakes isn't a very attractive option if something sudden happens. And you've got a lot of weight, a lot of mass going down the road. So it's less about weird chaotic stuff pedestrians jumping off curbs in front of you but it's much more about planning ahead so i would say intuitively it feels like the highways are easier but it isn't that easy it's just that the problems are different you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about the road markings being able to have solid painted lines and the the discernible markings that a vehicle will be able to need to be able to navigate are there other ways around that? Because we know our roads are not in great shape, especially here in Pennsylvania. Um, can they use sensors? Can they use identifiable? Uh, can, can, can trucks talk to each other, for instance, using sensors or some other ca kind of capability so that they are able to navigate by other means than just markings? All the vehicles um, do more than just watch the lane markings. 
they're looking for other objects. They're looking for other vehicles, although following another vehicle that's also leaving the road maybe is not such a great idea. Uh, but if you think about an interstate, there's not a lot of stuff there. Uh, in an urban environment, you have buildings, you have light poles, you have curbs, street curbs you can look at. An interstate highway, if you don't have lane markings, uh, it, it gets a lot more challenging. Think about driving in, in a completely unplowed road, that your first, the first vehicle down the road, sometimes it's hard to know where the pavement is. You can use uh, satellite navigation GPS, but that's not good enough to tell you uh, which lane you're in unless you subscribe to a precision GPS service. There are a lot of ways to do this, and there are smart people thinking about it, and, and I know they've thought about all these things. Uh, but it's, it, it, is, it is a little bit of a challenge to know exactly where you are, uh, and, and so they're going to have to work and make sure they get that right, even if one of the sensors breaks while you're moving, or even if there's missing lines. But, but really, if you got lines on the road, that's so much of a help, it's going to make it so much easier. So if I were them on the first runs, I'd really want to have nice lines on the road so that I have that on top of everything else. So we've seen a lot of advancements in machine learning and artificial intelligence over the last couple of years. How much will these technologies play into being able to develop autonomous vehicles? Well, let me start with artificial intelligence doesn't mean anything. Artificial intelligence means the stuff that's really hard to do. And every 10 years, it, it's meaning changes because some things are easy now and the next thing is hard. So uh, I, I understand people use AI as, as a abbreviation for all the cool technology, but, but it doesn't really mean anything. Machine learning, on the other hand, is a very specific technique that's currently being called AI. And, and the way it works is central to why this problem is so hard to get all the way there. In machine learning, you show the computer system a bunch of examples, and it does statistical analysis, and it tries to be able to, if it sees a new sample, say, that new sample looks like the other sample. So if it sees a person, it doesn't actually know it's a person. It says, you know, that thing looks a lot like all the other people I've seen before, so it must be a person. And that's great. If you train it on things that it's seeing, it works great, but that's like the 98%, 99%. If there's something it's never seen before, it not only struggles, it doesn't even know that it doesn't know what's going on. Uh, so there was one example we had where there were um, people in yellow that were having trouble seeing. It turned out this thing hadn't been trained on anyone in yellow. And so if you were wearing yellow, it was basically camouflage to the machine learning system because it hadn't been trained on people wearing yellow. Not so great if you're directing traffic at a construction site or you're a bicyclist in the rain wearing a yellow raincoat. So the, the things that it, it makes weird, crazy, stupid mistakes on sometimes come as a real surprise to the people. And, and that's why I was talking about the long tail, the, the rare things that you haven't seen before. That's why that's such a challenge to this type of system. And it's going to be, because there's a lot of weird stuff in the world. It's, that's why everything's taking longer than everyone wants it to. From the logistics market, obviously we see advantages in having autonomous vehicles sometime down the road. Uh, being able to uh, alleviate some of the problems with the driver shortage. But there are a lot of other benefits I've heard about, too, including that trucks can be spaced closer together, uh, which could help with some of the constraints that we see on our highway systems with capacity, um, as well as being able to maybe haul more freight in a more, uh, you know, cube things out a little bit better, have bigger trucks or longer trucks. Uh, trucks being able to run longer days and not being uh, subject to hours of service regulations, those kinds of things. What do you see as the main benefits that will kind of help to push this technology along in the next few years? Well, let me go back to the jobs thing, because that is so central. Uh, I, if 
someone is a truck driver today, I don't think they should worry about not having a job by the time they want to retire. This technology is going to take a long time. Even if in the next year or two, as is promised, we have some trucks going out, even if there's a thousand trucks in the next four or five years, that's just a drop in the bucket. It's going to take a long time to really scale this technology up to be able to go on roads that aren't the easiest, most benign roads. And, and along with that, there are going to be plenty of jobs and maintenance and stuff like that. So uh, the, the scare headlines about truckers will be out of a job next year, that, that's just not going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, having some alleviation for the trucking, uh, the trucker shortage, I think is fantastic. And, and I think it's going to be more like that. In, in terms of other things, all of the things you said hinge on safety. Until we can get safety right, none of that good stuff is going to happen. And the industry is at a point where right now it's just getting to the point where this stuff really works. And they're just starting now to really think hard about safety. And there's a there's a saying we have in the computer world that the first 90% of the project takes the first 90% of the time. And the last 10% of the project takes the other 90% of the time. And that's kind of where we are right now. So I think there are amazing things you can do if you don't need a driver, all the things you said, uh, but ultimately it boils down to can you really ensure these things are going to be at least as safe as a human driver? And we're not at the point yet where we have an answer to that. So there's there's still some more work to be done here. Thank you, Phil. We really appreciate your time with us. We've been talking to Phil Koopman, Associate Professor at the Carnegie Mellon University Electrical and Computer Engineering Department and an expert on autonomous vehicles. Thanks again, Phil, for your time. Thanks for having me on. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, you wrote this week about how the supply chain congestion at our nation's ports does not look to be improving anytime soon. What's the situation? Yeah, just so. Uh, we've been writing a lot, Dave, lately about uh, freight backups at the maritime ports, uh, both throughout the pandemic and particularly through the recent peak holiday season. Uh, a lot of products are delayed uh, by weeks throughout the economy. Um, I, I've heard of supply chain delays from everything from aluminum cans to semiconductors to the foam that uh, fills couches and chairs. Uh, and one big reason is that uh, COVID shutdowns threw a wrench into the just-in-time global economy, and the system really isn't built to recover from such a shock very quickly. For example, last time I heard, this week, there were 105 container ships waiting in the ocean off the U.S. West Coast uh, at those ports of Long Beach and L.A. alone. And looking at those conditions this week, uh, we heard about a study forecasting uh, that that situation probably won't get any better in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, it says that the uh, variables uh, were studied by the logistics technology company Container Exchange and also research organization Fraunhofer. Those are both German organizations. And it basically concluded that uh, looking at the stats, ports in China and other Asian locations which are generally known as the origin ports, because there are so many factories producing goods, are actually operating faster than ever. However, ports in the US and the UK, which are generally known as destination ports, because that's where a lot of the consumers are, are running slower than ever. So obviously that creates imbalances in the supply and the demand of both the seagoing vessels themselves and also the shipping containers that we put stuff in. Uh, here are some specific numbers to illustrate the challenge. Shipping containers uh, spent an average of just five days at depots in China during 2021. 
and they moved almost as fast through other manufacturing sites, uh, like in Vietnam and Singapore, uh, Thailand and Indonesia. But compare that to the turnaround time for containers and port depots in the US, which was 50 days, 5-0, and the UK, 51. Uh, and that trend extended, it was only a little bit quicker, in some other major consumer ports, uh, like South Africa, the United Arab Emirates, and Germany. Ben, that's a very large difference between those regions. Did the study give any reasons why? Well, the study was mainly about statistics, and it simply pointed to port congestion. But I actually wrote about another study this week that gave a little more detail. Uh, basically, one strong reason is that there are just not enough trucks to move the containers once they hit dry land. And auto manufacturers are seeing a big demand to make more, but they're struggling to make new vehicles because of the same reasons that we're talking about here. So that's labor shortages from the pandemic, that's parts shortages, like those semiconductors we mentioned earlier, that are stuck on the ships in the harbor. Uh, looking forward, those trends are likely to hamper automotive manufacturing activity, at least through the first quarter of this year. Uh, and that one was according to the transportation analysis firm, ACT Research. So ACT also pointed to the relationship as well between the manufacturing companies and the consuming countries. Uh, their report said, for example, that those low cost manufacturing countries tended to have lower vaccination rates and they've had more trouble with previous COVID waves. Uh, the Delta variant uh, in recent weeks had knocked Indian steel production offline. Uh, and also disrupted some automotive sub-assembly production in other Southeast Asia countries. Uh, and now to combat Omicron, uh, the Chinese government has instigated shelter-in-place quarantines. Uh, they have a very strict uh, zero COVID lockdown policy. So Chinese parts suppliers and ports are at risk of going offline. I wish I had better news to share on today's episode, but uh, it looks like both these experts say that uh, these issues are really going to take a long while to untangle. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Thanks, Ben. Yep. And in another transportation sector, things are not much better up in the air. Victoria, you shared what's going on in freight markets. What can you tell us? Yes, absolutely. Um, and this ties in with what Ben was just talking about. So uh, demand for air freight is expected to grow in 2022, uh, but capacity will remain tight and volatile conditions are expected for at least the short term. And that's according to analysis from freight forwarding and customs brokerage firm Flexport, uh, which hosted an online industry update on the effect of the Omicron variant on the air freight market earlier this week. Um, and I had the opportunity to sit in on that. Um, there are a few factors contributing to the move toward air freight for many companies. And one of the biggest is more ocean to air conversions. And that's being driven by the congested ocean market, which Ben just talked quite a bit about. So there's quite a bit of demand out there. The problem is capacity, which has been hit hard by the pandemic and is being dealt another blow by Omicron, of course. Flexport executive Neil Jones Shaw explained that air freight capacity is down 7% compared to 2019. And that's largely due to a slowdown in international air travel that's reduced available cargo space in the bellies of passenger planes. There are other issues, of course, but that's a big one. And Omicron has only made the situation worse because airlines are dealing with crew shortages due to illness um, and quarantine requirements. Airlines are canceling flights and reducing regular capacity to deal with the problem. That's just one example, um, and, and Ben alluded to uh, the quarantine restriction and its effect on all of this. 
increased quarantine restriction for air crews in Hong Kong is creating a big problem for a lot of companies, but um, uh, Shah mentioned Cathay Pacific Airways in particular, which is um, out of Hong Kong. 80% of the airline's trans-Pacific eastbound freighter schedule and 100% of its far east-westbound schedule were canceled for the first quarter due to the change. And that change increases quarantine duration for crew members from three days to seven days. So there are all these problems out there that are really contributing to uh, this capacity issue. So what does this mean for shippers? Yeah, so um, the message overall um, is higher prices and longer transit times. And that's, you know, because of the problems we're seeing, um, whether it's in the air, ocean, trucking, all of those things. But in the air freight market, um, these cancellation trends are expected to continue until the spread of Omicron peaks, which um, I think as far as, I uh, as today is still expected to be sometime in the next few weeks. Um, and when that happens, Sean Flexport said uh, that'll likely lead to more normal conditions, hopefully in February. Of course, normal doesn't mean pre-pandemic, though. Um, and another interesting point um, that Flexport made was that there are gaps in trade and capacity growth over the past two years that continue to create other problems. Uh, as an example, he said trade between um, Asia and the U.S. was up 32 percent between 2019 and 2021, while capacity growth in that time between the two regions was only up 7 percent. The situation is similar between Asia and Europe, where trade was up 25% in those two years, um, but capacity was only up 15% uh, during that same time frame. So uh, like Ben, you know, I don't have a lot of good news to report. It looks like there'll be tough times ahead uh, as far as we can see. Yeah, and it certainly helps explain why there won't be a quick solution to the current conditions that we see in air freight. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories and check out the notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Thanks, Ben and Victoria, for sharing highlights from the news this week. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thank you. And again, our thanks to Phil Koopman of Carnegie Mellon University for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. And speaking of subscribing, we encourage you to check out our 11-part limited podcast series from CSCMP's Supply Chain Quarterly on the top 10 supply chain threats. Search on your favorite podcast platform to subscribe and also to listen to the past episodes. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Forged from decades of industry experience, Aptian Proof of Delivery supports global delivery fulfillment operations with the tools they need to increase efficiencies, gain real-time visibility, automate communications, and enhance the delivery experience for customers. Your delivery operation can be a powerful vehicle to deliver game-changing customer service, reduce costs, and drive growth. Aptian Proof of Delivery can help Visit Aptian.com and discover how now. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters when we will examine what other supply chain obstacles will be in our future this year. So be sure to join us. Until then, please stay safe and have a great week.